0: to the Royal Studies Network podcast series. Today, we are carrying on the conversation on the English Consort's Power, Influence, and Dynasty Collection. Um, As we mentioned in the previous podcast episode, where we looked at the entire kind of four-volume set, we talked about All four volumes, the Norman to early Plantagenet volume, later Plantagenet to Wars of the Roses consorts, Tudor and Stuart consorts, and the Hanoverian to Windsor consorts. Today, we're going to be focusing specifically on the two volumes that are coming out first out of the four, and that's volumes two and three, so that later Plantagenet and Wars of the Roses consorts, and tour and steward consort. So I have with me the editors of these two volumes. So we've got Aidan Nori, who is the mastermind of the whole kit and caboodle, if you like, and also the editor of volume three, The Tutors and Stewards with Joseph Massey. Um, so if you haven't met Aidan before, Aidan's a lecturer in history and the program leader at University Campus North Lincolnshire, also the managing editor of the London Journal. And for many years, again, um, absolutely core to the functioning of the World Studies Journal. Um, Aidan works on Elizabeth the has done some fantastic work on early modern queenship um, the author of the forthcoming Elizabeth the and the Old Testament biblical analogies and providential rule also has another work coming out with ARC's uh, Gender and Power in the Premodern World Series on Elizabeth I and Biblical uh, Connections, if you like. Two fantastic collections that Aidan has co-edited, one with Lisa Tompkins, Women on the Edge in Early Modern Europe, and also with Marina Gerzik, From Medievalism to Early Modernism, Adapting the English Past. Um, working with me on uh, Later Plantagenet in the Wars of the Roses, Consorts, or otherwise known as Volume 2, is Joanna Lane Smith. Now, uh, Joanna Smith has been a, a very key figure in kind of late medieval English queenship for some time. Her last medieval queens um, with Oxford University Press is, is a fantastic resource for looking at those late 15th century consorts, also a fantastic biography of Cicely Neville. Um, she is a visiting research fellow in medieval history at the University of Reading, uh, based in, here in the UK. So we've got some kind of synergy here between Winchester and Reading, um, as well as that looking at that kind of later medieval period in our volume. So these are my two guests today. And again, if you're interested in volumes one and four, there is another episode that will be coming out later to focus on those two volumes, um, again with Carolyn Harris, the editor of volume four on the Hanoverian and Windsor consorts, and also Dana Messer, who was looking after the very first volume, the Norman to early Plantagenet consorts. So here again, it's all about the kind of late medieval and the early modern kind of period. So we're going to be focusing down on that. the first thing I wanted to kind of start with is asking a question. And I know this is a tough question because I regularly get asked this, oh, who's your favorite queen? I think it's like choosing between your children, right? This is this is really tough to do, but I'm gonna force you. <laughs> so so again, thinking about kind of who is the favorite consort in your volume you edited and and why. So um actually I'm gonna start with Joanna for a change. Joanna, because you're volume two, what do you think about this?
1: Um, I have to admit, it's Elizabeth Woodville, who was, of course, the queen I actually wrote the chapter on um, because she is, um, well, her story is so romantic and tragic and dramatic. It's rags to riches. Uh, she loses her status and regains it and loses it and regains it again. Um, it's, it, yeah, it's got emotion and drama in it. Um, but also because her origins are so unusual, she's such a great case study for using for looking at queenship because she she doesn't seem to fulfill all the categories that a potential queen should. And yet what she does as queen um, is really trying to be the perfect queen at perhaps Sally to slightly to um, make up where she came from but so it's, it just makes a really good case study I think but also she's had such a terrible press that I feel kind of quite passionate about trying to set the record straight um so yeah try, trying to set that record straight but also I think finally because she feels very modern in some ways as well because she has this confidence in herself she says yes when the king asks her to marry her and believes that she can do it um and that was not seen as um, as a good thing, as a virtue in her own day, at least by some people. But it but it feels a very modern modern thing now for a woman to have that self-belief.
0: Excellent, excellent. I'm not surprised it was Elizabeth Woodville, but again, (laughs) excellent choice there. So again, this idea of so many of the consorts um, that we're looking at have perhaps a a black legend or a negative image, or or again, in need of kind of revisionist scholarship or or fresh kind of looks and approaches at at their life and and their their tenure, if you like, as consorts. So definitely, I'm hoping that's what this collection will be doing for so many of the male and female consorts, actually, that we're looking at. Um, Aidan, over to you. Favorite consort from volume.
2: Three, I know, I know. <laughs> no, not fair. I mean, uh, so I wrote in Jane Seymour um, because I did want to. I did feel like she gets um, overlooked and ignored um, and is thought of as being boring, and I wanted to kind of push against that. Um, but I do love Catherine Parr. Um, she is a woman after my own heart. Um, so I've decided that she's my favorite of the Tudors, and Anne of Denmark is my favorite of the Stuarts. I think that's a fair way to, to pick between them. It um, doesn't uh, also help by the fact that uh, Gemma Field wrote the chapter on Demma and it is absolutely brilliant. Um, the, the analysis she provides and the synthesis of all the material is just, it's so great um, and I really think particularly my volume, more than some of the others, have I think the, some of the most famous of the consorts as a group.
0: And I think actually you've touched on something. So we were just talking about obviously this issue of kind of some of them having a negative reputation or they need kind of a new look. There's a challenge as well with looking at the really famous ones and trying to bring something kind of new or again fresh approaches. But you you also touch on something really really vital: is there are so many consorts who are completely overshadowed by their husbands or by more famous women in their period or by the consort that preceded them or their mother-in-law, for example. And so the, there's a challenge every which way you look at it really with these with these consorts, isn't there? Well,
2: it's the, think of the Stuarts. On the one hand, you have Henrietta Maria, which everyone knows about, and then you have Catherine of and Mary of Modena. And then of course, even Georgia, Denmark. And so, you know, the number of people who've heard of one set and not the other um, would be quite high, I think.
0: Absolutely, and I, of course, I'm super passionate about the ones that get overlooked, with with, with Joan of Navarre because she, she's she's my baby, and 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 again, she's she's a woman that I think is absolutely fascinating, and yet most people are like, who? <laughs> so, absolutely. So it's really again a challenge um, on on all fronts. Look at these consorts from the famous to the unknown to the the ones that have the dark clouds, the ones that have the historical halos that maybe need a bit more of a realistic kind of look at them as well.
2: And um, that was one of the things. I think I'm going to be slightly controversial and say that my favourite from your volume was Catherine Lewis's um, on... Um...
0: Catherine de Valois.
2: Yes, Catherine of Valois. Um, that was brilliant because, you know, she was consort, you know, for such a short amount of time, really, and has this massive afterlife um, that was really, really fascinating because it's that thing that you kind of know all the facts. But when you kind of put it all together in such a clear, and uh, well-evidenced way, you kind of go, oh yeah, that actually makes a lot more sense.
0: Yeah, no, it's true, it's true, and and I think you're right, sometimes it's unpicking the kind of real woman from like you said, the afterlife issue. And, and that's a challenge with, with a lot of women. Again, whether they have the again the, the black legend of the historical halo or they're just MIA. Um, or they're the famous like so with Catherine Valois for being the progenitor of, of the Tudor dynasty when you know that obviously no one saw that coming.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> from day and age. So yeah. Well
2: and I, I think again too with our two volumes in particular, um we really have the problem of hindsight. So much stuff gets read back onto events that, you know, Catherine Ravowa is a perfect example there. No one could have known uh, that, you know, she would be, you know, part of the Tudor myth. Um, but it gets read back onto what she did.
0: Absolutely. Well, actually, you know, one of the things that we've already started to touch on to was I know one of the ideas behind this collection was to bring new approaches or, you know, fresh insights into each and every consort's kind of life. And I know that one of the directives that we had was to kind of find that find that, that way in, if you like, what was the kind of the the hook or the way into each particular concert? What was going to be the kind of thing you were going to feature on? So you've already talked about the Catherine of Valois chapter. And again, Catherine Lewis's chapter is fantastic and does really do that kind of turns what you think, you know, about Catherine of Valois on its head slightly. Were there other um, chapters perhaps that you thought, I mean, maybe even the, some of the thematic chapters, if you like, that offered that new kind of made you kind of rethink what it is what we think we know about a particular consort, about being a consort. I don't know, Joanna, do you want to kind
1: of come in? Um, knowing you were going to ask this question, I was going to say Catherine of Valois. and so as soon as Hayden said that. But Sorry. It was, <laughs> I'll forgive you. Um, but uh, yes, I think because it was actually, um, feeds into a lot of other ones in terms of, we've got the, we have these gender stereotyped images that are created of them. And, and Catherine more than most has, has just been this, um, sexualized character and the way Catherine Lewis brings in this extra information um, and perspective to to see her differently, I thought was really exciting. Um, Actually, I think Anne Neville took me by surprise. And that was great, because there's so little, you know, she's queen for so short a time and there's frustratingly little information about her. And I had tried to write about her myself. But then to see what Anne Sutton and Livia Visebukes were able to assemble about her, um, to really see her in the context of her family. was was a really rich way to see it to, uh, especially because she's so often just oh well the unfortunate porn in in the politics and, and and a tiny shadow against her hugely dramatic husband um so it was it was really nice to be able to see uh, a way of looking at anne that, that that set her much more um at the front of, of, of her of her story i suppose. Yeah,
0: and I think you brought something really good here. Sometimes there's a presumption that there isn't anything to say about a consort if, you know, uh, if if, if not much has been said about them before, they had a really short tenure, et cetera, and I think that that, looking at it again, or looking at it in a different way, or bringing the evidence together to kind of bring a different perspective, can kind of illuminate the fact that actually the Beringarius of Navarre and the Anne Neville's and the, and the ones that you think, oh there's nothing to say about them, have loads to say about them actually. It just takes a different perspective, or again digging into a different pile of documents perhaps to get a new look at them. Yeah, yeah, and how about Tudor and Stewart's? What do you think, Aidan? Uh
2: I think uh, Chloe Fairbanks and Sam Lane's chapter on Anne Boleyn, but it's not a case necessarily of saying something new, but about actually looking at stuff that may have been looked at, you know, hundreds of times before, um, and actually saying, you know, are we just reading this because this is how we want to read it, or are we reading it based on what it actually says? Um, so the focus of their chapter is um, the kind of ends involvement in the reform movement, but I think they're very very sensible to sort of how problematic it is to just be like yes, and Protestant. That's why you know, Henry VIII uh, wants to marry her, divorce and marry her, Um, but on the other end, um, I absolutely love Julie Ferguson's chapter on George of Denmark, Um, really uh, a neglected consort, you know, particularly because he's a man, Um, I think that's one of the reasons that has really contributed to his being overlooked, Um, but Julie does some really excellent stuff, um, thinking about George from a gender perspective, because we often think about him kind of as a failure, Um, you know he's this weak emasculated man and as Julie quite rightly points out there's no evidence for that that's not the case he's supporting and that's what he wanted Um, so kind of putting sort of modern ideals about what they should expect you know what a man should do um, has actually you know done a disservice to George.
0: I completely agree. I mean, George of Denmark completely reshaped the role of the male consort and his legacy is very much felt um, in terms of Albert and Philip and even the reason why they're called Prince Albert and Prince Philip, for example. Um, And I think you're right. I think George is ignored or downplayed or, like you said, emasculated that he chose to be his wife's subject. Um, But it was incredibly powerful in terms of kind of redefining what the role was and how that would work vis-a-vis regnant queenship
2: well you know as, as julie points out now her husband was literally voting in the house of lords you know no king gets his wife in the house of lords um and you know and because of george being in the house of lords you know people sort of gauged his opinion on stuff as the queen's opinion on stuff so if he didn't vote for something or didn't show up for a certain vote you know people were kind of trying to read that um to how that fitted with the queen um and that's an angle that you just don't really think about
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. You're right. And that, that is a, a completely kind of a factor of gender, isn't it? That, that obviously you're right. A, a woman wouldn't have been sitting in the House of Lords, you know, Elizabeth Woodville should get that privilege, Joan of Navarre didn't get that privilege, <laughs> but you're right, George of Denmark gets to do that. So you're right. It, it's a very different way of working that kind of world dynamic, that kind of yin and yang of kind of, you know, the male consort and the regnant queen and kind of how that can work um, maybe in some ways better um, than the other way around. So yeah, yeah. Really interesting. Definitely. Definitely. Okay. Now, obviously, these volumes, each of the volumes, we talked about how taken together, obviously, they, they span like a millennia, but each each of the individual volumes obviously are spanning a, a kind of a chunky length of time o- over centuries and thinking about that. So in terms of thinking about how that, how, what what themes kind of bring the each volume together, what would you say? Uh, Joanna, any thoughts about the volume that we did, um, volume two, kind of if you could spot a connecting thread or theme that kind of links all of the consorts in our volume together
1: I think the, the, obvious, conf- the, the obvious theme that we picked up within our introduction was that of dynastic conflict um, very much because it's the Hundred Years' War through to the Wars of the Roses um, and although the Hundred Years' War actually dynastic conflict's an excuse more than an origin for it happening it then becomes so important and that that, <laughs> that hinges on Isabella that the first queen in our um uh, in our volume and, and thus that way uh, going on forward then the queens are much more interwoven into this and it's not just conflict between the kings, the queens are absolutely a heart of it um, because of course they are the mothers of the heirs or the, or the actually the sisters and and, um, and daughters of the, of the men who people are at conflict with so they've got this real tension that they're often you know the family of the enemy so that, that's really key to actually shaping who they can be uh, but also of course being peacemakers that is so important as well so uh, sort of positive about negative elements of that dynastic conflict, which I think is, is the most overarching theme, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, that
0: that really did dominate the consorts in, in, in our volume. And I you think uh, you're right, there's this really interesting kind of male-female dynamic that men are kind of martial and make conflict, and women are supposed to be the peacemakers, but there is this issue with the conflict you're right because these women are completely sucked up into it whether they're sucked up into it because they're the consort of the monarch or because their relatives are on the other side of that conflict they're just at the heart of it in any way shape or form and it completely shaped their lives so yeah i, I completely agree with you on that one so how about for volume three is is uh, is it a similar thing or is there a completely different um, theme that kind of brings all those women and men together
2: it is difficult um because elizabeth is a royal family of one <laughs> You know, there's no one else. Um, So and I think that there is a real, obviously, you know, there's a difference between the Tudors and the Stuarts, but even just comparing, say, Philip II as the last Tudor consort and then Anna of Denmark as the first Stuart one, there is already a massive difference there because if we think about what's going on in Europe in the 1550s versus what's going on in the early 1600s, um, society has just changed so much. Um, and, you know, my volume is the first that had to deal with you know, the issue of religion. Um, and yet, by the time we get to the Stuarts, we're having consorts whose confessional identities are at odds and t- with their husband for the first time. Um, you know, we don't need to rehash, but, you know, Henrietta Maria's Catholicism and the start of the Civil War. But at the same time, um, you know, Protestantism is not a <laughs> is not a uniform church, shall we say. And, you know, the idea that George of Denmark retains his Lutheranism, like he never converts to Anglicanism, um, so it still attends Lutheran, uh, Lutheran services. Um, so I think, for me, that's the biggest thing, because particularly if we think about a lot of the trappings of consortship, so much of that is bound up in religion, and particularly in the earlier medieval period, the relationship between consorts and the Virgin Mary. And the Reformation really does break that off. Um, and really interrupt um, what had been a very long practice. Um, and so you see, um, and that's where you see stuff coming into conflict. Like, again, Henrietta Maria, it's not just that she was Catholic, but she was bringing a very Catholic view of consortship to England, which was by now very pleased to have been Protestant for many decades by now. Um, so, again, I think for me, that's the biggest, that's the biggest kind of thread
0: I completely agree. And the reformation is, you know, it happens like right slap bang in the middle of your volume. So that has to have a massive impact. Absolutely. And you're right, it does, it it totally is a game changer, effectively, isn't it, in every possible way. Um, so yeah, so lots to kind of think about there. Now. One of the things that's really easy to miss or that people who obviously haven't read these books yet might not be aware of is the fact that we don't just have biographical chapters of each of the consorts, but there are, in addition to the introductory bits, thematic chapters as well that look at kind of issues of being a consort of the consort's tenure or office or you know kind of it, wider wider concerns to kind of you know contextualize the lives of these women. Um so so just some kind of thoughts about the if you could tell us a bit perhaps about the thematic chapters in the in the volume and then again what light you think they shed on the role of the consort So um Jen, I keep coming to you where I'm kind of going two and three and two but um do you want to tell us a bit about what we've got in, in volume two.
1: Sure, yes. Yeah. So the um, the, f- the first thematic chapter we've got is Katia Wright's one on the Queen's finances, um, which I think is really important for enabling you to understand what's underlying these Queens and their different situations, that actually their financial situation is changing. The finances are a lot more complicated um, than you might expect over this period because they've got these different um, sources. Some of their estates, they're, they're given just for life. Some uh, some of them just on um, on the uh the um sorry just for life that's the good thing um some of it is at the king's pleasure and is more easily taken away and some of it is just for dower but then later on you get to the point where actually dower lands are what they're holding on for life at the beginning so it is it's it's a bit of a pain to try and work out exactly what they've got all the time especially given the lack of sources there are um tie, tying in with that that that, that, that are surviving. But as that was so that's that's really useful for underpinning um the sort of the more visible queenship that you're getting in the chronicles and the letters and all the rest of it. Um, and then Anne Crawford was looking at the um, the impact of the Civil War on queenship, and what I think was really interesting from that is in that way it shows the enduring and um, resilience of consortship, and that actually, despite all that was going on, despite the way that Margaret of Anjou is so vilified and sort of turned into a character to undermine. Henry VI, it, it, it's not actually having as much of an impact on queenship as, as you might think, as you might expect. Um, and then, of course, Ellie, there's yours on um, foreign queens. Um, and um, I think what struck me, well, um, really, actually, I, I love the way you were looking at the suggestion that we've perhaps overstated the xenophobia that goes on in terms of people's concern about not just the queens, but those who are closest to them, and that actually the concern is with anybody having too much influence and impact on the king and um, that obviously partly the reason i'm fascinated by that was because that then impacts on well how do you think about how people respond to the woodvilles actually it's the in same thing. it's not because they were low status or because they deserved it it's it's just because they had that that, that close that proximity but um, and what, what did you think was was most striking when you were looking at that
0: yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I, you know, I, I think that um, something that that is really significant in in volume two um, is this kind of beginning of the, the the rise of, I guess, native consorts. Like, we can say, to, obviously, there'd been the succession of. Of foreign consorts and then with Anne Neville, Elizabeth Woodville, Elizabeth of York obviously um, we start to have these these kind of English consorts and that trickles over into Aidan's volume as well. We've got Anne Boleyn, we've got Catherine Parr, we've got Catherine Howard, um, again James Seymour. So this kind of uh, really important glut, if you like, of native concerts. Then, of course, by the time we're looking um, at, at um, Carolyn's volume, we've gone to all the German, we've got all the German concerts. This kind of massive kind of run of that, even kind of German male concerts or, or Danish male concerts, and in, in, in the case of George of Denmark. So, um, th- th- I think what's really interesting across volumes two and three is that shift, or that maybe even if it's temporary in a way, um, going from the the foreign to the native. And you're right, the same issue of influence and and concern about the Queen's or the consort's proximity to the ruler and the the nature of their relationship being inherently intimate means that people can't quantify that influence or that that suggestion I mean even what you were saying earlier Aiden, about like trying to read what George was doing is that because you know is, is he reflecting Anne and again when when a ruler does something they're thinking is that is that because the consort was whispering in their ear? <laughs> you know, so, so there's some really interesting things about influence. And again, that that's right in the title of the of the the whole um, the whole kit and caboodles. This idea of power, influence, and dynasty. Influence is kind of central to the role of the consort, be they you know foreign or native, if effectively. So, yeah, I'm a slightly rambling response there. But uh, but in, in your volume, Aiden, what are the tell us a bit about the thematic chapters and tell us a bit about what it tells us about the consortship.
2: Yeah, so uh, Steph Russo did a fabulous thematic chapter for the Tudors on the depiction of the Tudors in historical fiction. Um, And this was something I wanted more or less from the get go. So when I came up with the idea for the thematic chapters, I was flexible um, because I thought you know, you've, people will have read the biographies, it, you know, makes sense to kind of consider them in a group, particularly for volumes three and four, where there is such clear divisions between the kind of royal houses, as it were. Uh, but I knew from the get-go that I wanted to have something on the Tudors and historical fiction, because while we do talk about uh, films and TV shows, um, the market for historical fiction is, I think, uh, overlooked particularly by scholars. Um, we're very happy to, you know, write stuff on the Tudors as in the TV show, um, or films about Elizabeth I. but there is far less work done on historical fiction. Um, there's clearly a market there. Um, so it was, it was great to have, um, something that considered all of the Tudor consorts. So not just Henry's wives, but also Elizabeth of York and Philip II. second, um, to so bringing them together. Um, I think was really important and it, it's, it's a great chapter. Um, and then Katrina Murray did one for the Stuarts, um, where she looked at their kind of changing depictions, um, particularly uh, through gender, um, but also through material culture, showing that you know there were lots of concerns between about each consort that were displayed and vocalized and talked about. But again, also lots of concerns that were shared. So again, you know, going back to you know the idea of dynasty. So yes, you've got the female consorts who have to give birth, but then you've also got the issue of George, and you know Queen Anne herself being the one who has to give birth to the child, and those kind of tensions there when it's the regnant monarch who is the one giving birth, going into confinement, all of that.
0: Excellent. So uh, yes, some really interesting threads on kind of representation and legacy then in the thematic chapters, and to be honest, you know, thinking about whenever you're dealing with the tutors. The, the afterlife issue that kind of long-term the kind of the the massive popularity the enduring popularity of the tutors has so much to do with not only the fact that it you know looms large in the curriculum but also again this this massive kind of industry around the tutors um and and you're right the the, the historical fiction element of that is is neglected. Absolutely. Absolutely. So really interesting. And thinking about, again, representation, their own lifetime, legacy, perception, reputation as well. So there's so much to kind of think about there. So I'm hoping that this little discussion about volumes two and three has wet people's appetite. And obviously volumes two and three, in a way, perhaps maybe some of our most famous consorts um, are in these two volumes. I mean, again, where we are talking about Margaret uh, of Anjou and Elizabeth Woodville, the Wars of the Roses again, I guess, and we've got Philippa Gregory thinking about historical fiction, the impact of uh, that that's had on kind of raising the profile of those women. Uh, your Anne Boleyns, you know, your your, your, your Catherine of Aragons as well, um, and Henrietta Maria as we were talking about. Again, some, some very, very famous um, consorts, but we're hoping too that these thematic chapters will unpick some elements Um, that haven't yet, or maybe aren't considered as deeply and really are important, really vital context for understanding the role of the consort, as well as the chapters on the consorts that people might not know so well. So uh, yeah, we we really do hope that people do read these cover to cover and from volume one all the way to the end of volume four, because there is so much there. Um, I really want to thank you both, Joanna and Aidan, for coming on uh, the podcast today, telling us a bit about volumes two and three. Again, they're coming out this summer with Palgrave Macmillan's Queenship Power. series and we're hoping that you enjoy each and every chapter and each and every consort that's featured in both of them and again chapters one and four as soon to follow so that you can have the complete four volume set at your fingertips (laughs) thank you both uh, for coming on and for joining us today and again for our listeners keep your eyes out for the english consorts power influence and dynasty series thank you thanks ellie